Well, we're in this series, um, which is more important than the Super Bowl, but we're in this series uh, called The Voice of the Heart, um, which is it's based off this book uh, called Voice of the Heart by this guy named Chip Dodd. And uh, each week we're taking a look at one of the eight core emotions that we have and looking at kind of the good and the bad uh, of each one of those emotions and how it begins to uh, shape our lives. And so uh, here's the chart um, that we've been looking at each week. And so you see down the middle are the eight uh, emotions and we're almost to gladness and joy. And uh, we're almost there, but in order to have authentic joy, you gotta work through these first seven, uh, which are so important. And this isn't just about emotional health, right? Like, I mean, it is about emotional health, but really, this is about how we end up like seeing ourselves correctly, our ability to love others well, um, but most importantly, how God sees us and what he wants for us. And um, that's why it's so critical to, to be in an emotionally healthy state because of how it seeps into every single part of our, um, of our lives. And I'll, I'll be honest, the more healthier we get emotionally, the more we begin to understand the reality and the truth of the gospel and so that's why this is so important for us to engage, and that's why we're taking so much time uh, doing this. Um, how many guys uh, know who this is? You guys know? Yes, all right. So some of y'all know it's Ric Flair. And um, so instead of having you raise your hands, I, w- I want you guys to do something different today. Uh, every week we've been saying, hey, like, who wants to be emotionally healthy? Will you raise your hands? I just want to do something, change it up. So when I say, give me two claps and a Ric Flair, you guys do what? Woo! Yes, so... So we'll practice, ready? Give me two claps and a Ric Flair. There we go, all right. If you'd like to be emotionally healthy, give me two claps and a Ric Flair. All right, there we go. Just wanna do that, change it up. So, today we're talking about shame. And uh, every single person in this room deals with shame in some capacity. Um, Every single person in this room I'll just go, so he's not on there. I'll, um, every person in this room has felt the, the weight of shame in our lives, and shame is connected into so many different things. Uh, often we, we see shame with narcissism, with eating disorders, with uh, you know, bullying, with suicide, with addiction. Uh, shame is always at the center of all of those things, and, and, and other things as well. But uh, shame is often, honestly, when we think about shame, you're probably thinking just negatively around that word inherently. Uh, but here's what we see in, uh, in, the, in the book, and, and when Chip talks about this, is that there is a gift to shame, and then there's an impairment. And so the impairment is toxic shame, which is what we think of when we think of the word shame, typically, is this toxic shame and contempt. And contempt, what that is, is this, uh, and how I want you to kind of, I want you to be able to reframe shame a little bit uh, today, because toxic shame and contempt is essentially a disgust or distaste for the fullness of your own humanity. That you begin to, when shame enters in, it's something that's pulling us away from who God desires us to be and identify with. And what ends up happening is when shame starts moving into toxic nature uh, and contempt, we end up seeing like, oh, something's trying to hurt my humanity in connection with who God desires me to be. And, I'm mo- and that's like shame on the front end. And it can go two different directions. It can go in the impairment direction, which is this idea that, oh, I move into this toxic level of thinking and acting and how I'm wired. And I actually begin to have like a distaste for humanity, my own humanity that I was made in the image of God and, and, and I have like a contempt for that. Like I don't even, I don't even want it. I, my, my whole life is like oriented to go away from that. 
So that's like the toxic shame. That's where we see like narcissism come in. That's where we see like bullying come in, addiction that gets into that place. That's where it starts. But then there's this other side to it, which is the gift, which is humility. And so if you think about it, if we process our shame really well and in those moments, it, it should lead us like, oh, whoa, this is taking me away from what God desires, desires me to be. So in humility, I, I want to surrender myself to the reality of what God wants and, and step into the fullness of life. That's where humility would lead us to. And so we see the, the difference in how we be, can engage this idea of shame and how it can be something that could be good for all of us. But instead, quite often, it leads to this toxic nature of everything. Now, here's what's interesting. Even men and women, like, they typically uh, engage shame differently. Uh, men will typically uh, view it as, like, this weakness. I don't want to be weak. And they view it as a weakness, and so we try to avoid shame. But in the midst of avoiding shame, we actually move into a toxic nature of things. Uh, for women, quite often, uh, it is the reality that women have unrealistic expectations of who they should be and the perfection of what it should be to be a woman in this state. And that shame, and it's like rather than embracing that reality, it's like, okay, I'm going to move into more toxic nature, and it becomes so destructive in how we think about ourselves. And so we, we see that reality. But here's the thing that I, I want you to like, hear like, right off the top, that this, we are nurtured into this. It is a learned behavior. Like, we, like the, how shame and toxic shame in particular works, we are nurtured into this by the things around us, and it is a learned behavior. You're not inherently just born with this. You are, are nurtured into it, and I'll prove that to you in uh, a bunch of different ways. But ultimately, what ends up happening is when we think about shame, shame is different than guilt. We'll talk about guilt next week. Guilt is about, like, what you've done. Shame is about who you are. There's an identity element there. All right, and again, we're nurtured into this piece. And, and think about like the world around us right now. I mean, seriously. And we'll read the passage in Genesis chapter three, how, how Satan tempts to like, the serpent tempts to, to it's all around identity. But, but right now in the world around us, everything is about identity. I mean, just take a step back. If you could just like take a step back and look at everything that's going on in our culture. It's all identity based. In the greatest way, that, that, that evil can win or seem like it's going to win or it tempt us. It's, it's all centered around identity. Get your identity away from actually what matters. Get your identity centered on something that is, is not God. Get your identity like, centered on something and like, describe yourself as something that isn't how God describes you. And if they can just get people to keep doing that and get distracted and tempted by all this other identity stuff, whether it's sexuality or politics or, or, or money or whatever. It's like, it's like, man, get it all identity, all the focus over here. And God's like, no, this is not who I designed you to be or how to think of yourself. It's like, it's the easiest way to tempt everybody in so many ways. And so we see that like, oh, this is just what's happening. Well, this isn't, this shouldn't be news to us. Like the Bible actually gives us a wonderful example of how this actually works. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and so if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And uh, it, in the beginning, it talks about the human condition, essentially, and, and what happens with our humanity and, and, and what it means. And, and we see the beginning of creation and, and uh, all the things coming into order, God taking this idea of chaos and bringing it into order and, and being the creative God. And then eventually, he uh, ends up creating uh, a human, right? And um, the, the story goes that it's Adam. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't care if you think it's a literal Adam or a metaphorical Adam. 
I, I don't really care. Um, but like it's, but we're talking about the human condition here. And, and what ends up happening is he creates Adam. Now, one of the things that in Genesis chapter 2 that I always love that we can kind of skip over, and Lacey and I were talking about this this week, uh, was, was that there's this part where it says, then God made a, a helper suitable for Adam. And it's interesting, the way that's described is that Adam was going around to everything else and being like, are you my helper? Are, I, are you with me in this? And so he'd go to the hippo and it's like, is it you? And the hippo's like, oh. I don't know. So, um, but like, but like it's, it's like he's going on to all these different things and it's like, it's, it's, and, and there's not, it's like, it's not suitable. It's, it's not the helper. It's not, it's, not, it's not what's supposed to come together. There's no, there's no ability for me to be one with this animal. It's a reality. And so, so he creates something else in the woman. And even this idea of helper is a word used for God and the suitable nature is this, and, and sex differential really matters in uh, the, the, the uh, creation story and the idea of two becoming one, right? That we see all this stuff that's in this creative order that God has designed it to be. And, and so we see like, oh, it's like, man, a woman's supposed to come together like this and, and like they're suitable for each other, even in friendship and in marriage. It's like they're suitable for each other. This is how it works. The differential in people and humanity, it's like it's supposed to be this way. And then we come up on this story, and it seems like everything's good, right? They're, they're in the garden. They're in the garden in communion with God, and, and it's just the way it's supposed to be. Well, then we pick up the story in Genesis 3, and then we begin to understand a little bit more about the human condition. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so it's interesting, he, he, comes, he, he approaches her, he's like trying to like lure her in some way. He's like, did God really say? It's the first thing. Like, you think about temptation in our lives. You think about cultural narratives and everything. This is at the essence of all of it. Did God really say this? And that's what we have to answer all the time. Did God really say? And so he says this. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not, must not touch it or you will die. And there's some things here that like that's not exactly what God said, but anyway, so things are starting to get a little bit twisted. It says you will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And so there's this intent here in this story that's like, if I can just tempt you to get your identity away from God being creator and us being in, in a humble submission to that God and get you tempted enough to think that you are God and just like God and thinking you're such a big deal and you'll know all the good and evil. You have all the answers to things. It's like this, this is the temptation. It's identity. That's what it's all centered around. And so the human condition responds in this way. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and, and, uh, for food and pleasing to the eye. How many of you guys have uh, made uh, a mistake that you regret? Gave it to, yeah, gave, gave it to temptation, right? Gave it to temptation. Was it not pleasing to your eye in some way? Did you not think in some capacity, oh, this would be food for my soul? It's the same temptation over and over and over again. And so Eve says, oh, this, this looks like food for me. 
and it looks pleasing, and so she engages. And it's also desirable for gaining wisdom, and so she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, which, I mean, think about the story of Adam right here. Like, there's so much wrong with him. It's like he's just sitting idly by. He's the one, right? He's the one that actually received the word from God, but he's silent in all this matter. He was the one that told Eve what God said. And, he, and so, and then he's sitting idly by as he sees her making the wrong decision. He's just like, well, then I guess I'll eat it too. I mean, he's an idiot, right? <laughs> and so, so we see that like on the front end of the story, it's like, man, there's so much going on here about what people do during temptation and, and what it looks like to be strong and courageous in the midst of all this stuff and the responsibilities that we see. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So that inherently what ended up happening while giving in, the first thing that they needed to do is they realized the reality. They just separated themselves from who they were supposed to be. And so when you think about some of those things that we regret or temptations we've been given into, we realize on the front end, like, oh, that felt good for a second. And all of a sudden, what do you do? You had this feeling, of, oh, I got to cover that up somehow. And you step into it immediately. And I don't care how big or small it is, that's what we do. And it's immediate. And so it continues on. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Even their hiding is foolish, right? Because it's like God created everything. It's like you think he can't find you in the hide and seek game, right? And so it, it makes us foolish when we respond to temptation. So the Lord God called the man. He says, where are you? Meaning like, what's going on? Like, what, what happened to you all? He wants to see, are you going to be, are they going to confess? Are they going to be honest about the reality? It's like, what's going on inside of you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man says, look at this. The woman you put here with me she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman looked at her response. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the shift in identity really moved. And you see right at the top, all right, they have separated from the fullness of who they're supposed to be as in, hum in humanity and decided to choose another route. And in that separation, they hide. In that separation, some things are happening. And here's what we're just seeing. This is what toxic shame starts to look like in our lives. Relationally, with ourselves, with others, and with God. It's all over this. I mean, there's so much in this story, but it's all over this story what, like, toxic shame is. You see, they had a moment in that shame to be like, ah, even when he was like, oh, I'm tempted by this. And, and, and the serpent sounds right, but... But it kind of goes against what God said. And in that moment, she could realize the shame of that, right? Because it's like impacting her humanity. And she could have chosen humility. Adam could have chosen humility. But they didn't. And when we don't, it led to toxic shame. In the book, um, Chip writes this. He says, rather than lead us to acknowledge our neediness, toxic shame entangles our hearts, tightly binding them up, leaving us unable to experience full life because we can't experience our natural place. We believe we should hide who we are and we center our lives around doing it. 
your natural place, my natural place is in the garden with God. That is our natural place. But what toxic shame does is like, "Mm, let me take you out of that. Let me take you out of that place. Let me take you out of where you're supposed to be. Let me take you out of what God designed you to be. And let let me help you put your identity in something else. And in that something else, we begin to see the, the wreckage and the damage that is caused by all this toxic shame, and eventually we can't experience a full life. And, and listen, I know everyone in this room resonates with this last line Chip writes that says, we believe we should hide who we are and we center our lives around doing it. Because there's something that we've been hiding and you will center your life around, how do I make sure people don't know this about me? That they don't actually see this reality of me. Because if they see this part of me, oh man, they're going to be, I, I, they, they would think so poorly of me. They, they, so I'm going to orient my life and I'm making sure no one actually ever sees that part of me. That's toxic shame. That's a contempt for your humanity. And eventually what ends up happening is it erodes our relationship with people, ourselves, and, and God. And so let's go through what toxic shame does to us. Um, toxic shame reveals itself through feeling rejection is justified. Feeling that rejection is uh, justified. Um, shame begins as like a, a primal rejection. So if, um, think about it this way, if, if Kevin is my son, and which would be weird because he's a large son, um, but if Kevin were to like come up to me as my son and he's like, dada, dada, and I'm, and, and, and I'm over on my phone, right? And, and I'm just looking at my phone and I don't pay attention. He's like, dada, dada, and I'm just keep going. Dada, dada, I just keep going. I'm like, just stop, dude. Like, dada, dada. And I just, he is rejected in that moment as a young child, okay? Now, I know no parent would ever do that in this room. Get locked in on your phone. Um, if that happens, is that automatically send Kevin into a horrible spot? It does not, okay? It does not. If Kevin repeatedly Steve coming up to me, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and I reject, and I reject, and I reject, and I reject, what does he start to think about his own identity as a child? Oh, I'm rejected by the one who's supposed to love me. And that rejection creates a toxic shame and a contempt and an identity marker that begins to happen. And so, and we begin to say like, oh no, like, but I tried my best. And it's like, this is why like parenting is so daunting, right, too? But it's like this reality that ends up happening. It's like, keeps happening. Eventually feel uh, rejected. And so the way I wrote it down this week was, toxic shame is love being met with repeated indifference. It's love. You're trying to offer up love. And, and listen, Eventually, like if, if you're in a relationship with someone else and you're, and you're trying to love and, you're try- and, they, and they keep rejecting repeatedly, eventually you're going to move into toxic shame because you're going to think, what? It's all on me. It's my fault. This is who I am. I must be unlovable. I must be someone who needs to be rejected. And here's what ends up happening. That to- we start believing that toxic shame. We start believing that message. And and then as it begins to seep into us, it starts ruining the way we see the world, the way we see relationships, the way we see love, the way we see parenting, the way we see, um, eventually, the way we see God. It's like, oh, if if my parents rejected me, then then, then, then God must also want to reject me because if my parents can't love me, how could God ever love me? And we begin to see, like, why this rejection starts becoming such a pivotal thing. 
We can inherit shame from generations before us. I mean, you guys ever, you ever heard of like the term like generational sin? Like it's carried over and over and over again. Some of this is that. It's like maybe it happened like before you. And as it keeps happening before you, it gets passed down. Because it's all you know. And the generation, it's all they knew. And so they respond in that way and they act in that way and they try to love in that way. And that's how they think that this, all, this whole thing works. And it continues on generation until someone comes in and says, this is not going to be our story. Um, we have systematic rejection that feels justified. Um, Lacey has shared this before. Um, like, women have been rejected in our culture, right? Women, you should say amen to that. Um, giving you opportunities. But throughout time, women have been rejected in our culture for one reason or another. Lacey was raised in a wonderful home um, at a great church and everything else. But she would say that even some of the inherent culture that she was kind of around made it feel like she couldn't lead. Because uh, all the men did the leadership stuff and then the women did something else. Even when we went during church planting, uh, hey men, you guys come over here during our training. You guys go over here, kind of learn leadership and talk about like what it means to plant the church. Hey women, you go learn how to have better sex with your men so your man is happy. And so eventually what ends up happening is that there is a rejection that happens and what? It becomes an identity marker. And it continues on. That's why when you hear um, black folks talk about like like the idea of being rejected or less than even the reality of generation to generation. I mean, think about three-fifths of a person. You kind of go through like all these different things of being rejected, rejected. You think that doesn't become an identity marker at some point? And you, and you feel that in the moment, and you feel that throughout, it gets passed on. And what does it take? It takes, one, a mir- miraculous move of God to change that identity. And it takes other people to step in and be like, this is not who you are. But you can see how systematically it keeps creating a narrative. That you can buy. And what is that? You buy into that narrative, and then eventually what ends up happening becomes a reality around us, and people respond to it and live into it. And so we see what happens. Well, what's going on? It's toxic shame and a contempt of people. And what eventually will happen is you'll reject the image of God in yourself and reject the image of God in other people. You're no longer an image bearer. You're an image taker. And that's what happens through toxic shame and contempt. So as it builds and it builds and it builds, and we see this in different ways uh, in our culture, um, you think about um, even pornography right now, right? Uh, I was looking at a graph the other day that I was just like, this can't be true, and it's so sad that it's true. Uh, But uh, the amount of people who think pornography should be illegal, uh, Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Zers, less than 20% of people think it should be illegal. Um, A little bit older age bracket, it only goes to about 45%. I'm like, here we are. So, get the, so with pornography, where, where does pornography start and, and where does it begin? It's all about shame. It is all about shame. And, and, and what ends up happening is there's an, a shame element that happens inside the person that is, is engaging in it. And when I, when I talked about before that it's this idea of like you, you lose you, you, the ability to see the image of God in yourself, but then you're what? You're taking the image of God from someone else because you're just using it. But what's it built of? It's not built off of lust. It's built off of toxic shame in the stripping of your humanity. That's what it's built off of. And so when we begin to, to see that reality in that engagement, and it's like, 
whoa, we, we become so numb to the realities of dehumanizing things that people end up being like, oh, that's fine, it's not that big of a deal. This is just, again, this is no different than the story we see of the serpent and what happens. This is how it plays out. Unless someone wants to come in and interrupt it. Unless, and so if, if you're someone who's like struggled with pornography, this isn't about heaping shame on you. It's about, it's about understanding where it came from, right? And that God loves you and has a better plan for you and a greater hope for your life. And you start seeing something differently. And the healing starts happening. And you start taking these steps in the right direction and experiencing the fullness of life that's always been designed there for you. This is how else it, it works. Toxic shame has us reject who we are and focus on what we are not. It rejects who we are and focus on what we are not. So toxic shame reveals itself through this too. Um, I should statements. Maybe you said stuff like this. Again, this is all learned behavior. I should be better. I should be healthier. I should be prettier. I should be wealthier. I should have a better looking boyfriend or girlfriend. I should be more social. I should be more perfect. Perfectionism is often a sign of toxic shame. And so it's, 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 I should be, I should be, I should be, I should be, I should be. These are all learned behaviors. Someone was putting these things uh, into your mind and into your, into your life. Should statements are based off of what you've received from others. Think about the reality of, um, in, in the church. Uh, how many of you guys in, in, were hurt by your church growing up at all? The church has often leveraged toxic shame for salvation of someone's soul, but the wrecking of the but they wreck the experience of, of Jesus in them, essentially. Let me let me shame you into believing in Jesus somehow because you're a wretched sinner who's going to hell. And let me shame you into that reality. And so you think so poorly of yourself, not in a humble disposition, but just negative like shameful poorly of yourself and I must need God then rather than seeing the love of God and that he delights in you as his creation and that his heart breaks for the reality of what sin can do and that he offers up this ability to be saved and experience the fullness of life through Jesus it's like, but we leverage it. And so, so then what ends up happening is sometimes people then want to come back to this whole church thing, but they've been built on so much shame that they're like, I don't even know if I can step back into this. Because what's going to happen? What's, what's the preacher going to say? Or what's going to say? Like, and you step in and you're like, and you're nervous about it. It's like, leverage shame. Third thing that we do when we see shame at work is we start blaming. We saw this, you know, in the story um, and maybe you felt this. Like you, you, when toxic shame is at play, you start blaming yourself for things. Uh, I remember sitting with someone one time who was in an abusive relationship. And she said this. She said, uh, I think it's my fault that he's hitting me. I, I should be a better wife. I should, and I'm like, no, 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 no. But what is that? That's toxic shame. You start blaming yourself for things that are not your fault. You might, the mood of another person. That's ah, my fault. It's, it's the blaming of yourself in the midst of this. You start blaming others, right? Um, you start being super judgmental and condescending of other people. Uh, when toxic shame 
starts really working into us, you have a contempt for other people, and it's really easy to be condescending, negative, pessimistic. It's really easy to, to be judgmental of other people. We've said this before, it's super easy to concentrate on their sins while neglecting your own. Um, that is toxic shame and contempt at work. Then you blame God. Remember Adam, uh, what does he do? He blames God. It's like, the, it was the woman you gave me, right? He gets a twofer there. He blames the woman and God. But we start blaming God. Maybe you've been in this place. God, why did you make me this way? God, why did you let that happen? And you, and you blame God for, for those realities. Here's the last thing. Well, not the last thing. last part of this point. Don't come up yet, Lord. Um, toxic shame reveals itself through a fixation on status. Fixation on um, status. Um, we have a toxic identity. And so what ends up happening uh, is you feel like, uh, this is like big ego. Um, this is uh, grandiose. Like, look at me kind of feel to everything. This is where narcissism comes into play. Uh, where you start seeing like, um, People like a worshiping of themselves. And you can even see this in religious cultures. Like someone who might know the scripture really well, really big about it, really egotistical about how well they know scripture. Let me tell you, but they're really super judgmental and condescending. And there's no humility in how they engage the realities of the teachings of Jesus. All you're seeing right in front of you is a hurt person who has not recognized the hurt, who has immense amount of toxic shame in their life. And they will hurt people around them. And that's what it looks like. It's, it's big. Um, it could also uh, look like perfectionism, a staged personality, where you're one way in front of one grouping of people and another way in another uh, grouping of people. You might uh, be fixated on uh, being the best at something to overcompensate for what's really going on uh, inside of you. And some of you in the room are like, ooh, thank God I'm not like super competitive. I'm just like an artist or I'm like super unique. Well, you can also, your fixation on how unique and special you are is also narcissistic and reveals an element of your own toxic shame that might be developing. So what's the gift of humility? What's the gift of humility then? There's the reality of shame and toxic shame and contempt, but there is this gift that we can move into in this humble disposition that we, is represented by the reality of Jesus and who he is. Jesus was teaching uh, some of his followers at one point in time in, in Matthew chapter 18, and he's talking about, um, some of you guys have heard this story before, but uh, he's, like, he's like, man, be like the little kids. You know, like, see these kids come around, like, let them all come to me. Let them all come to me. Like, like I want you to be like little kids. And a lot of times people say, yeah, it's about... Um, like being humble like little kids. And yes, it's like childlike faith and purity. Sure. But there's also this element where Jesus is talking about status. It's about status in, in everything. And, and what are you like leveraging your status with? All right. Or do you have a humble disposition in how you uh, interact with the people around you? He's so serious about this. Look what he says to them. He says, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world, ready? The world who's trying to convince you of another identity, who's trying to leverage power to try and hurt you or tempt you into something else. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. Here's what I want us to remember about humility. Humility is grounding Humility is we begin to understand our place in this world. Um, have you uh, ever like 
gone outside and looked at the stars or looked at the ocean or been on a mountaintop and you realize just how small you are? That's what humility begins to feel like. It's like, whoa, in the, in the midst of all of this, golly, man, like, I need to understand my place in this. My place in this world. It doesn't make you feel bad about who you are. It's just like to understand how big God is. How humbling that, that the God, you stand on a mountaintop and you realize you're this big in the matter of creation that you're just seeing around you. And it's like, the God of all of this loves me that much. Is that not so dang humbling? I mean, that's crazy. God loves us that much. It's a grounding element. We see our worth in who we are, not by what we've achieved. I love this quote by Brennan Manning. He says this, Define yourself radically as one loved by God. Every other identity is an illusion. Every other one. Any identity you try, it's like, it's an illusion. It'll never, leave, it'll never lead you to fullness of life. But I am radically loved by God. Right now, some of you guys are talk, thinking about maybe some place that you're hiding something. You realize the reality of your shame. You are radically loved by God. If you thought anything else walking in here today, I want you to hear this. You are radically loved by God. That is your identity. That doesn't mean you get out of get out of jail free card and there aren't consequences to actions and all those things but you are radically loved by God and God wants you to shape your life around that reality and your identity and hope in that. When we're humble and we're grounded we live with vulnerability. Shame strips us away, toxic shame strips away that vulnerability but man, when you're able to truly be vulnerable, when you're able to, to, to stand with someone and be like, let me tell you what's really going on in my life. It opens up something inside of you that is just, it's a God, that's what God has always wanted. That's what God will transform. And I've said this before in the series, God will not transform what we keep hidden. But man, we open ourselves up and be vulnerable to the realities of this. God wants to transform what's going on. Um, I was, this stage of my life, probably since last September, I can honestly say that I think since last September, this has been the most I've ever sought after God in my whole life. And the closest I've ever felt to him. And um, the amount of times of just pure emotion of engaging God has been wild. And um, even like almost every single Sunday morning sitting here while the band is practicing, like feeling the emotion of the reality of what my, what's about to happen in this room. Um, hearing stories, all that. At the same time, since last September, um, I've also like felt this tension and temptation and pull to, to like feel like my identity is still back to who I was. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's this crazy thing that keeps happening. It's like this temptation to go back. And it's like no, I don't. even um, this past week, I was lying in bed. Lacey was on like a little retreat, and I was and I, and I was just lying in bed, and I was just like. Man, it's crazy that I still feel like I need to perform for God's love still. And I, and I like pause. I was like, I, this just isn't true. But I'm like, but it's, I was like, that seeps into me sometimes still. That's what it is. But it's like, nah, God wants to transform that in me. 
Why? Because I'm radically loved by him. Um, humility, I'll be quick. Humility creates empathy. Humility creates empathy. We begin to see people differently. Um, we understand kingdom of God thinking. There's this empathy like begins and compassion starts rising up inside of us. We see ourselves, our mistakes differently. Uh, part of the reason we talk so much about like family of origin work and, and different things like that here is not to try and figure out uh, to blame someone else, or be like, oh, my parents were this, or my parents were that, or whatever. It's, it's, it's not to get you, um, it's more to, to have us understand why something has happened, not excuse why something has happened, if that makes sense, right? Well, when we have this humble disposition, we start seeing things differently, as compassion begins to rise up, and then humility brings a soul awareness. Laura, you can come up. Humility brings a soul awareness. If you could fix yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus. If, uh, <laughs> this is what I always say, like, do, do, uh, do disciplines matter? Yes. Uh, do laws matter in our, in our country? Of course, right? Do laws fix things? No. You know why? Because we need a savior to wreck our hearts and understand the fullness of life. That's what fixes things. Do we still need the laws? Yes. But you want to get to the root? Ah, it's like, this makes me very aware of what's going on in my soul. When Jesus teaches about, hey, have you ever lusted? Well, then you could commit adultery. What is he doing? He's like, I want you to understand the reality of what's going on in your soul so you can be aware of how much you need me. You ever gotten angry? Well, you could murder. I want you to be aware of the reality of what's going on in your soul so you know how much you need me that you are loved, that you are significant, that you belong in God's family. It brings this soul awareness to who we are. You think about the story arc of the Bible, and it's like we've always belonged in the garden. Even the Bible ends with a garden and a city, but it's, it's we've always belonged in the garden. And in essence, we're always trying to get back there, and God wants us to bring us there. When he goes up on the cross... Cross was the ultimate view of shame. And it looked like evil had won. And maybe you sometimes feel this inside of you. And it looks like evil has won. But Jesus takes on the greatest representation of shame and defeats it so that we can experience the fullness of life. Why? Because you are radically Loved by God. Shame does not tell your story. The death and the resurrection of Jesus does. Shame and sin does not define who you are. The death and the resurrection and the reality of Jesus does. That's your story. Now the question is, do you want to live into that story? So when I want to close their eyes, the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing one more song. It's called Promises, and it's about what we anchor our lives to. But before we sing together, I just want you to have just a moment here to process. Maybe it's to try and figure out where you're hiding Or how you're hiding, I should say.
maybe it's discovering the reality of, of shame and how you need truth spoken into that.